0: The title of the sermon today is the Adam and Eve story, what it is and what it is not. Most people have a sense that they know very little about the Old Testament, but Genesis 1-3 to seems to be the exception. Almost everyone knows the story of Adam and Eve and can actually relate the story to in some detail. Today's sermon deals with two questions. Question one is, what is the meaning of the story? And then, surprisingly, the other one is, what is not the meaning of the story? Here is a sermon in three parts. This is the old-fashioned three-point sermon. Part one takes a page out of Walter Brueggemann's commentary on the book of Genesis. Very fine commentary. We're right near the beginning. He has a single page Entirely devoted to what the Genesis story is not. And you know, I think it's the freshest page of commentary I've ever discovered, i ever read, on the subject of the book of Genesis and the Adam and Eve story. By the way, at my stage of life, I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages on this story over the many, over the scope of many years. Part two of the sermon we'll drill into the ideas of an early theologian named uh, Origen, Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, whose writings, written about 1,800 years ago, nonetheless present what I think is the modern and also the realistic approach to the story. In other words, the Adam and Eve story is actually not history. It's, ma- it's a made-up story, not big make- based on actual events, and they tell us mainly that God is creator. We also shall, in that second part of the sermon, note some of the absurd parts of the story. I'll repeat that, some of the absurd parts of the story. This needs to be faced, and this needs to be pointed out. And then part three will switch gears quite dramatically, And I'm going to talk about the theism-atheism debate. In the culture of which we are part, you can't really talk about creation without immediately dealing with the question, well, who made all of this? And suddenly you're into the question, does God exist? Or does God not exist? And if God exists, what sort of God is that one? So here's part one of the sermon, what the story is not. I've just mentioned his name, Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is an American Old Testament scholar. He's actually written more than 40, more than 40 books of the Old Testament. No, I've only read two of them. One of them is is a very fine commentary on the book of Genesis. The word commentary means a book entirely devoted just to that one book of the Bible where a learned scholar makes comments on it. I have two commentaries actually on Genesis, and the other is the classic commentary written by Gerhard von Rad, who was one of the giants of German Old Testament scholar, scholarship. Walter Brueggemann is actually not a Presbyterian, but interestingly enough, his lengthiest academic appointment was to the Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. And Decatur is a northeastern suburb of the city of Atlanta. In his book, in his commentary on Genesis, Walter Brueggemann makes the following dazzling point. This is entirely from him. This is his material. The first point, I think, is the most important one. It's also a bit startling. He tells us that Genesis 3, the Adam and Eve story, is not, is not, the foundational text of the Bible, that it points out that the rest of the Old Testament virtually totally, not totally, but almost totally, disregards the Adam and Eve story. It's as though this story never existed. And that certainly evokes the question, hey, what's going on? But clearly there was some sort of reaction in the mind of Hebrew people against the story. I can only make guesses as to why that was, but my guess is that it's along the lines of the conclusion of today's sermon. This is a made-up story, and I noted that there are some absurdities in the story, and I'll point them out, and I think they simply scream and point us to one direction, and that direction is, this is mythology, and mythology like the parables of Jesus which they didn't exist either, but they were true in the sense that what they pointed to was true. So that's the very fascinating thing that Genesis three is there all right, but it then it's virtually forgotten in all the rest of the Bible. Then the second point Bergman makes is in the Old Testament this story is not, is not, is not, is not treated as an account of the fall of man. And this is the complete opposite of what we find in the New Testament, where Paul in Romans chapter 5, from verse 12 on, treats it in that fashion. Fall means the diminished moral capacity of human beings. But the story does not treat Adam and Eve as diminished. They are merely expelled from the garden. The rest of the Old Testament, in fact, expects... A high moral capacity from people and does not treat people as diminished nor fallen. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, we read the words Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. The text itself makes no particular claim for the human prospect, nor is it the pessimistic document. That people think that it is. His third point, Brueggemann's third point, is also entirely fascinating. He points out that it, the Old Testament, and the Adam and Eve story, is not, is not, is not, is not an explanation of how evil came into the world. Paul takes it that way in Romans 5, but the Old Testament does not, and the book of Genesis does not. In fact, the story gives no explanation of evil. The talking serpent, tempting Eve, simply appears without explanation. It comes as a great surprise for many people to be told that the Bible, in fact, gives no explanation for the origin of evil. And that is worth repeating. The Bible, in fact, it comes as a fact to be told that the Bible, in fact, Gives no explanation for the origin of evil. Forget all about the story about fallen angels and stuff like that. The Bible just doesn't give an answer to that particular question. Nor is it an answer book to all our all of our questions, including our religious ones. Then the fourth, the last point of his that I will read today is: It is also not the story of how death came into the world. In fact. No one dies in this story, even though it was threatened that if you eat of the forbidden fruit, that person will die. But in fact, the penalty is not carried out. They are expelled from the garden, but they are not killed. An action very different indeed from dying. And my comment on Brueggemann's page, and he goes on a bit further than this, but I'm I'm stopping here, is simply the words, thank you. Thank you, Walter Brueggemann. Everything you've written there needed saying, and needed saying deaf, desperately, strongly, and clearly. So I'm pleased to read his very important material to you today. Now, this slide leads us to part two of this three-point sermon. And part two is pointing out that none of this actually happened in history. That the Adam and Eve story is a made-up story, it's a myth written to convey certain spiritual truths to us. Why and how have we reached this conclusion since so many in fact believe that this in fact is all history? But first let me tell you about an early theologian named Origen. His dates are approximately 185 to 250 AD. He lived in Alexandria, northern Egypt. It's a city that still exists. Uh, right now, it is uh, Egypt's second-largest city after Cairo, and it sits there right in a beautiful way on the south coast of the Mediterranean Ocean, Me- Mediterranean Sea. Origen succeeded a person named Clement, Clement of Alexandria, as the leader of the Christian group in the city of Alexandria, a Christian group that was had a school that they called a catechetical school, which I take to be a school of basic Christian instruction. Let me tell you the age that Origen was when he was asked to take over this school. Origen was age 18. 18. There's some reason to believe that he might have been as bright a theologian as the Christian church has ever had. Certainly he is has one of these minds that bristles with ideas and is full of intensity and full of insight. In one of his books, he, Origen, comments on Genesis 1-3, to pointing out that there are too many things against it to be taken literally. And Origen writes, The story of Adam and his sin will be interpreted philosophically by those who know that the word Adam means Man, And in what appears to be concerned with Adam, Moses is speaking about the nature of man. He points out that the account given in Genesis 1-3 to cannot be taken as history. He points to the fact that light in Genesis chapter 1 is created before the sun is created. The word day is also used before the sun is created. But the word days is a function of the earth's relationship to the sun. And light in that sense. So there are all these problems in the story of Genesis at the beginning of the world, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But in particular, he's talking here about the Adam and Eve story in Genesis chapter 3. What are some of the problems that are in this text? Well, how about a talking snake? When last did you he hear a snake talk? For heaven's sakes, Isn't that the hot tip you need, that this is not history, this is mythology? A talking snake just doesn't cut it as an endeavor to write history. Or how about, of all things, knowing the difference of right and wrong by what? Eating a piece of fruit? What? What's going on here? Again, it's more mythology. Or another piece of fruit, and if you eat that piece of fruit, you have the gift of eternal life. Again, it doesn't really make any sense. Again, mythology. After Adam eats the forbidden fruit, there's this very peculiar uh, conversation attributed to God, where first of all, God appears to be jealous of Adam. That doesn't make any sense. And the idea that knowing right and wrong is somehow a wrong thing to do. But that doesn't make sense either. For heaven's sakes, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike, give a lot of territory to the subject of what is right and what is wrong. A lot of territory to the moral teachings of Jesus. A lot of territory to the laws, the difference between right and wrong. So the whole thing is highly confused at this point. Did you know that Genesis 3 also then goes on to depict God as a gardener? Yes, it talks about God planting a garden in, the, in Eden. It also then later depicts God as a tailor. Yes, it's actually in the Bible. God is a tailor making garments for the naked Adam and Eve. The, higher, the entire list, the entire story, is weirdly disconnected, I think, from reality. By the way, we also note that the Bible nowhere tells us that the Garden of Eden was ever removed by God? It doesn't say that anywhere. If it does, show me the passage. Well, if it still exists, where is it? And the answer is it's nowhere for the simple fact that it never did exist. It is very difficult to avoid concluding that the Garden never existed, nor did Adam, nor did Eve. Moreover, it is critical to drill into the meaning of the words Adam and Eve. It's interesting that in Hebrew, the word for man came from the word earth. Hebrew Adama means earth. And then from that, you get the Hebrew word Adam, which we now pronounce as Adam. We keep thinking it's a proper name. But you have to grasp the fact that if a Hebrew person heard the story in Hebrew, which of course he would or she would, and and encounter the word Adam, he wouldn't think of a proper name at all. He would know that the word Adam simply means man or mankind, and that the word Eve means mother of all living. They're not proper names. They're designations. It's interesting that another ancient language has exactly the same development. In Hebrew, Adama is earth. From that, you get Adam, which means man. In Latin, the Latin word for earth is humus, and then the Latin word for man is, take a guess, you're gonna be right if you take a guess. The Latin word for man is homo, so you're right, you all guessed right on that one. So just, when you add all of that together, I think you reach a conclusion that origin got it right. That indeed, uh, this is a mythological story much like the parables of Jesus where the story is true in the sense that what it points to is true, that God is creator. God gave us the first human beings on the face of the earth. But when you think of Origen's views expressed 1,800 years ago, his dates are by the way 185 to 250, that's when he lived. It's really odd that a fundamentalist view of the Adam and Eve story that this is history has continued. In fact, it continues on into the present age. It may even be the case that you have taken this as history yourself, which you're entitled to do if you wish to do, but my view is that origin got it right way back then, 1800 years ago. Our second heading leads us strongly to conclude that there never was an Adam, there never was an Eve, and there never was a Garden of Eden. That this is a made-up story, much like the parables of Jesus, that give us spiritual truths, and to those truths we hang on. Now I come to the third and the last part of the sermon. There's not a direct continuity here. I've been talking about the Adam and Eve story. you think I'd make a third point about it. But in fact, I want to talk to you about Creation and God as creator and the God and non-God debate that is going on in our culture today. Why is that? Well, I suggest to you the simple idea that whenever you talk about creation in the modern world, you're automatically inviting this debate to deal with atheists, the atheists who say there is no God, and we who come along and say, well, there certainly is a God. In fact, we're here because God made us. So I think I want to make a few comments on that, just at this point. The other day, a strange idea came into my mind and I thought to myself, you know, I've got a degree in honors philosophy. Why don't I try to take my own personal look at the current state of the debate? And what comments would I make on just on my own? What do I think? Well, here's what I think, based on that sort of invitation I gave myself, a bit of weirdness, I I agree. Basically, when you talk to atheists today, time and again, they've been using a phrase that tends to be new to me. I don't recall this phrase phrase being bandied around about 30 years ago, but their answer is, it all just happened. There's no God, where did the world come from? Where did the universe come from? Oh, it all just happened. My sense is that the atheists try to take that as a throwaway line, and my comment is, it's not a throwaway line, it's a basic position you're taking, and it needs to be defended, as any other position needs to be defended in the atheist debate. And the more I thought about it, I came up with this weird conclusion, it may be wrong, and maybe none of you will agree with me, that if you use the argument, it all just happened, In a weird, weird, weird sense, it takes more faith, more faith to be an atheist than it takes to be a Christian. Why? Well, when you look at the world, both the atheist and the Christian look exactly at the same data. And I suggest to you that the data they're looking at is design. Design shouting and screaming at you, assaulting you in the face. It's a design universe. And this is a design world. And I think the logical, obvious thing to do is to move from design to designer, which is exactly what the believer in God does. We believe in God partially because we all of this think all of this didn't just happen. And strangely, in the in the figuring of this debate, it seems to be Easier to say that, and more logical to say that, than to have that faith position that the atheist has. Oh, it all just happened. In other words, the design there, but I have no explanation of it. Oh, it all just happened. And I think, intellectually, logically, they're on far weaker ground than they seem to realize. It's interesting that there's a dazzling example of what I'm talking about within the world of British atheism. About 20 years ago, a prominent uh, British philosopher who was an atheist shocked the atheist community among philosophers by announcing that he was no longer an atheist, he believed in God. In his name, His Anthony flew, I think he died a few years ago, but obviously he was alive when he made that decision based on the evidence. The main evidence that he was convinced about was the earth traveling around the sun, that if the angle changed ever so much, life on earth would not be possible. And his conclusion was, no, there's design there, something happened, something was given. Some of you might ask, well, with your degree in philosophy, uh, did he you know the name Anthony Flew when you were studying philosophy? The answer is yes. And if you ask me, did, did I read any of the writings he wrote, the answer is also yes. The name is known to me. So that's the interesting way that Anthony Flew gives us an interesting insight into the theism, atheism debate today. Also, in closing, I now want to give you the title of a book. And the odd thing is, I'm not suggesting you read the book. I've tried to read it. I largely could understand by the large parts. I couldn't follow it. But it's the title of the book that I want to leave with you, and maybe leave with you this as the, the main idea of the sermon today. The name of the book is, da- the author of the book is David Berlinski. David Berlinski. And the title of the book, the difficult book, is Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. Hey, what's going on in our culture? Not next year or 10 years ago, but right now. That's what's going on. It's staring in the face. Atheism is pretending to be science. Oh, you believe in God. You're against science. That is complete nonsense. And Berlinsky drills into this idea and points out, come on now, you can be an atheist if you want, you know, that's a position you're entitled to take if you wish, but don't pretend it's science. Science means you can prove it. Well, you know you can't. You know you can't. Some years ago, after leaving Knox Church I, in Ottawa, I then went to uh, Quebec City for five pleasant years and then I thought I thought I'd retired at that point but the phone rang and would I come to Halifax and be the fill-in minister for a few months at St. David's so I wound up at St. David's in Halifax I loved St. David's I might add and I loved Halifax and the people there it's interesting though the congregation was far from large but it was intriguing Virtually every Sunday, when I looked across the face of that small congregation, there were in the congregation three, three professors of physics, one professor of chemistry, and a few other science professors as well and other professors. It was one of these university, one of these churches that seemed to have attract the attracted university teachers. While I was there, also one of the funerals I was asked to conduct, I was told, "Oh, the person who died is a scientist." Was a scientist? I said, "What did he do?" "Oh, he's the head of the Department of Chemistry at Dalhousie Unis- University." I guess someone forgot to tell those physics professors in church Sunday after Sunday, "Hey, you shouldn't be on. Un- you shouldn't be here. You're a scientist, and a scientist should be an atheist." The point I'm making is just not true. A hoax is being perpetrated in our North American culture right now. Atheism and its scientific pretensions. That's the main thing I wanted to take out of the story today. And I end with this. Before I was at St. David's, I was in uh, 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 St. Andrew's Church, Quebec City, but prior to that I was at Knox Church for 12 years. One of the people who was in church every Sunday, and every Sunday when he was in town, was Henry Howden. Oh, and what did Henry do? Henry was one of the lecturers on evolution at Carleton University. He found no trouble whatever. Lecturing on evolution from Monday to Friday in Carleton and coming to church on a Sunday. Also in church virtually every week was Jim Nealon. Jim was the head of the Department of Microbiology at Carleton University. It's interesting that this phoniness is way out there, this idea, oh hey, atheism, you gotta be scientific, and if you're scientific, you cannot be a believer. Someone forgot to tell all these men and women who are science professors that that is just not true. And I've often thought, for heaven's sakes, I was minister of Knox, not a huge church, but big enough, then a minister of that very small St. David's church. If all those science professors were there, for heaven's sakes, what could be found in a large Roman Catholic cathedral or a large Anglican church or a large booming United church? In other words, there are hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of men and women who are science teachers in our churches today. They just haven't fallen for the line atheism and its scientific pretensions. So these are the thoughts I leave with you on the subject of the Adam and Eve story. Uh, Thank you for being here today.